Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to you. This is Molly Rowan Leach, and I am your host for Justice Week during our Summer of Peace Summit. This summit runs through International Day of Peace, which is September 21st. And we're perched right now, as we know, in a profound moment in time, and justice is transforming in our collective conscience. Yesterday, it was an honor to be with you and host Arun Gandhi. And I just wanted to remind everyone, um, please remember you can access all the recordings um, of this series this week, as well as from the entire Summer of Peace series. Um, Well, actually, after 48 hours um, of the session itself, you you can access it up till then. And then you can also opt in to access the entire summer's programs, which I would highly encourage you doing. I'd like to take a moment to thank Philip Helmick, Jeffrey Kine, and the Shift Network for making this summit possible to a free global audience. And a few quick notes about today's hour. Those of you joining from the webcast are welcome to submit any questions you might have. And for those joining live via the telephone or Skype, we'll have time for questions towards the last quarter of the call. Today's guest, Dominic Barter of Restorative Circles, I have deep and profound respect and admiration for, and I'm so happy and excited to have this hour with you and with him. To me, he is an extraordinary soul, and he blends very practical global experience leading programming in restorative justice and circles worldwide for a very wide spectrum of organizations. He's humble, gentle, and he's also an alchemist. He told me once in regards to restorative circles and justice that this work is too urgent to rush and that moving towards conflict is safer than moving away from it. Since 2004, he has worked as a consultant and training program director for the Brazilian Restorative Justice Justice Pilot Projects in collaboration with the UN Development Program, UNESCO, the Ministry of Justice, Ministry of Education, and Special Secretariat for Human Rights. He is focused on developing effective models and training programs for practitioners to address youth crime and its consequences. He supervises implementation with judges, school administrators, police, social services, and youth and community leaders. He also coordinates the Restorative Justice Project for the International Center for Nonviolent Communication. I'm very pleased to also announce that um, we in the United States have the profound opportunity to directly engage with Dominic upcoming next week here in Denver, Colorado, from August 9th to the 11th at the Colorado Restorative Justice Summit. Um, And then he will go on to New York, to Rochester, working uh, with and hosted by the Gandhi Institute um, with a preliminary on August 18th and then an in-depth training August 20th through the 23rd. And that's, again, in Rochester, New York, hosted by the Gandhi Institute, which is GandhiInstitute.org. And please go and check out the Restorative Circles website at restorativecircles.org. So without further ado, Dominic, I just want to deeply welcome you um, to this global circle and um, to thank again everyone that's with us. 
And I would like you, if you would, please, to just start out with a little bit about your thoughts on restorative justice. Thank you very much, Molly, and thank you to everybody who's made this call possible and has dialed in. Uh, restorative justice can be seen as a reawakening of a, a very ancient and always present sense that justice is not simply about meeting and what, how to respond to breaking of agreements and rules, but it's also primarily about relationships. It's about human beings living together and the different things that happen that can lead to us to experience conflict in a profoundly painful or perhaps violent way, and therefore to need some kind of community organizational response, a coordinated response that enables us to, to rely on it and, and know that the community will be there when we need it. So restorative justice emerges as, as this idea coming back into our consciousness and back into our society, and from about the 1970s onwards, first as an idea, and then as a series of pilot projects in different places around the world, often within the current justice system, where different uh, lacks of that justice system are recognized, but also on a community level, in schools, in families, in neighborhoods and organizations, people come together to decide how they want to respond to conflict. And crucially, restorative practices bring together all the people who are involved in conflict to dialogue so they can decide together how best to repair any harm that's been done and choose how they want to go forwards living as a community. Mm. Can you say a little bit about uh, restorative circles as, as it applies to and weaves with these principles that you're speaking about and how they were inspired? Well, that term has two, at least two different meanings. One is as a more generic term, and it's used for many different restorative practices in which people come together to talk when conflict has emerged. But specifically, restorative circles with a capital R and a capital C is the name that we gave to the process that developed here in Rio, in Brazil, in the mid-1990s through a series of conversations with people in favela or shantytown communities about their local reality and how conflict impacted them on a daily basis. And in a very improvised manner, none of us having any prior experience or knowledge about the wider restorative justice movement occurring in the world, we began noticing that certain things really worked well as a response to conflict and other things not quite so well. And over a number of years, we began to develop a sequence of procedures basically made of the things that seemed to work well. And when we did that, we found that community relations were strengthened, there was more social cohesion, there was a greater resilience among participants to dealing not just with the conflict that they'd experienced, but future conflicts as well. And a tendency for conflicts not to diminish, but to be, be caught by this community web of concern before they became painful or violent. And after a while, we started to need a name to refer to this. So when the Ministry of Justice asked us after about 10 years of doing this practical research to develop the restorative justice pilot projects in Sao Paulo and in Porto Alegre in the south of Brazil, then we started to use the term restorative circles to refer to what we were doing. One of the things, Dominic, that is so um, profound to me about your work 
is, um, it, well, first of all, the way that you approach as um, a facilitator in your humility and your, I said that you're an alchemist because I, I mean that. I, I see that you help to hold a space for conflict that seems unique. And I'd like, I'd like you to share your, your perspective on conflict uh, and open that up a little bit today, if you would, please. Thank you. Um, I, think, I think of myself really as being rather clueless about conflict. I don't, <laughs> I don't, really, I don't really understand what it is, and um, I don't know really what to do when, when conflict emerges. But I have become very interested in, in continuing to have that question, even as, uh, even as the, the conflict starts to speak more loudly. Because I've found that if I can quite quietly be present to it, and its internal dynamics, then some quite extraordinary things tend to happen, at least extraordinary in relation to, to how I was brought up to think about conflict. And one of those is that the more I move away from conflict, maybe in a big social sense, uh, putting up fences and alarms and separating myself from those people who I consider dangerous, or in a more personal sense, maybe just uh, breaking relations with someone else, or using uh, a punitive means to try and change someone's behavior, the more I attempt to separate myself from conflict, the louder it actually gets, the more violent things become. Mm -hmm. And when I do the opposite and actually move closer to conflict, then the more it reveals itself as being an attempt to dialogue, an attempt to communicate. So the little that I know about conflict is that it becomes a very fruitful place of, uh, of transformation in relationships and updating us to new situations when we are able and supported to simply look at it, simply stay with it. And restorative circles could be understood as simply a way to organize us to be able to sit still in the presence of conflict and to allow it to flower mm. rather than trying to repress it or change it, or even to resolve it. Yesterday, Dominic, when, when we were in conversation with Arun Gandhi, we, we went into a little bit of a space of exploring this, this principle of, of vulnerability. And um, I wonder what your thoughts are on what, ke what, what keeps us from embracing conflict, what keeps us from thinking that it's something to be repressed, and what what might a person and a community do to start signaling that conflict and differences are opportunities and gifts in the truest sense of the word? Hmm. Well, I know in in my case, one of the things that keeps me from simply being with conflict is a very strong cultural idea that I received that conflict is dangerous. Now, if I find something... Uh, if I come across a, a dangerous animal, for example, uh, when I'm walking in the, in the forest, it makes sense for me to increase the distance from that dangerous animal. That would be safer for me and safer for the animal, too. So when I think that conflict is dangerous and I don't question that idea, then I might presume that that would be the best response to conflict as well. It seems rather complex and, and potentially quite, um, quite tricky, to, to, to live with conflict. The people around me don't seem particularly safe in, in their response to conflict. They're not feeling safe about it. 
So I start to pick up the idea that it would be better for me to move away from it. And of course, when I do mm. that, it generously raises its volume to compensate for that distance. And that raised volume, if I'm still frightened of it, can frighten me even more. And then I can set up a, a, a vicious circle in which the further I, tra- I try to distance myself from it, the worse things get. So one of the things I might do is question that cultural idea. Is that really true that we're safer when we move away from conflict? Might not we actually be safer when we move towards it? And then maybe you can think of the relationships that you most value in your life. Those friendships where you feel you really can say anything and the person will receive you as a human being. Those are places, I imagine, where it's actually safe to say things that people might find difficult to hear. And by Mm. continuing to say those things and remaining truthful, even when it's not easy to, you may experience that the relationship is strengthened and deepened. And if that's the case, then you already have experience of moving towards conflict. So that's a cultural idea that I might want to I might want to question. It's very interesting too because we uh, again yesterday we were going into this a bit and uh, the the cultural identity and and we're birthed into a jacket so, so to speak that feels a bit tight and not quite sure how to wear it uh, and yet we're wearing it nonetheless and um slowly but surely coming awake to, uh, you know, uh, uh, removing the jacket perhaps or transforming it in certain ways um, as individuals and together. And um, I was getting the image of of wearing a new pair of shoes. (laughs) You know, at first that that new pair of shoes of of welcoming conflict, of of being safe and feeling, you know, feeling grounded in, in a circle even when things might be difficult to to say or to be heard um, after we walk in them for a while, it becomes easier and easier, does it not? Yes, I think so. Um, and especially when we begin to think collectively about how we want to respond to conflict. The more I'm part of a, a small group that begins to see conflict more creatively as a resource that I want to be able to listen to and integrate into my life, then the easier it will be for me individually to remember to make certain choices that will support the likelihood that the conflict will end up contributing to my life and not separating me from others. Mm. Well, right now, Dominic, I'm noticing that somebody from the webcast has a question that feels very pertinent to this this discussion so far, Um, and it's from John. And he says, uh, Dom, I I have a chance to present a short training of about three hours to some folks interested in restorative circles. They work at a local women's shelter and are looking for ways to address conflict between the folks at the home, both the residents and the staff. Given the time constraint, what elements would you focus on? Mm, nice question. So I'm, I'm delighted that you've received that invitation and that you're willing to respond to it, Sean. Um, so the first thing that I, I like to do in those situations uh, beyond remembering, obviously, that you're, you're not me, so you'll be finding your own way to do this, is um, to put myself very, very clearly in the position of a learner, a, a newcomer into their community. And being so, I'm very curious about how they currently respond to conflict. I found that there's actually a lot of wisdom in our communities, our families, our work groups, our church groups, our neighborhoods, 
as well as the more formal justice systems we have in schools and in the, the justice system itself, traditional justice system. So I, I like first to, to connect to that wisdom and learn about it. So one thing I might do is propose a dialogue and ask people what it is that they currently are aware of doing that really works well when conflict appears. Because I think that any organized response that we would want to exist in that community uh, with a restorative orientation, it'll be based on what currently works well. And then I'd be interested in finding out what of the current practices are perhaps not quite so effective in responding so that we can all get more conscious of what it is that we'd actually like to avoid doing. And finally, I'm interested in what the dream of these people is. If they could have the re organized response to conflict, if they could have a, the justice system of their choosing, the one that they really, really would feel proud about that's fully aligned with their values, what would it look like? What, what principles would be, would be driving it? What would it be referring to? And what kind of practices might it, might it develop? And having that on the, on the table, I find is a really fruitful way to start because every time I've asked that third question, people have responded by describing to me restorative circles. And then my role is to find out how I can best support them to create the justice system that they dream of. And what I like about that is that it avoids the tendency that some of us sometimes have to make a pattern, make a, make a, a fixed response out of any particular way of looking at conflict. It would be very easy to make restorative circles into a fixed idea, a technique, or a methodology. And then it would lose both some of its liveliness and some of its relevance to the unique conditions of each particular place. So in this shelter, what, are the, what is the dream justice system and how can it be designed? And then for the rest of that time, the three hours that you have, if people are interested, then I might share some of my practical experiences of doing the same thing in other environments. And that might involve telling some stories about restorative circles that you have participated in, Jeanne, in, as, a, as a participant or as, as a facilitator in some way, or stories of circles that you've heard that other people have participated in. Wonderful. And th thank you so much, John, for submitting that question and certainly encouraging those that are coming worldwide off the webcast to feel free to submit a question. And then those that are live with us in Circle today will be reserving some time at about the quarter of the hour for uh, Q&A time. So, Dominic, on that note, I'd, I'd like um, to invite if you might be willing to share with us um, given that, that our, our theme today for the call is uh, walking towards conflict and how restorative systems can bring the justice scales to true balance. I'm very curious to hear from you, um, perhaps a story or a glimpse into some of either your past or current work with a particular community or group that bridges uh, the existing system like the, the criminal justice system as it is existing um, and people who are officials within that system with a community. Could you share? Um, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I'm sure you probably have something. <laughs> well, I just, I just came uh, running to this call from, um, from the, the main court building here in the center of Rio where I spent mm. um, the beginning of the afternoon on, on Rio time 
working with uh, groups of teachers and school administrators on dealing with a series of conflicts that have been uh, taking place in schools here in Rio recently and have led to deaths of some students and as well as a lot of disruption to, to the school as a, as a safe environment. Um, and tomorrow I'll be working with, with police groups here who are dealing with an incredibly challenging situation of uh, new police units which are being installed in the favelas here, uh, moving the authority of the drug gangs out of all kinds of areas of, of, of the life of these communities that they, current, that they previously ran. And there's obviously been some resistance to, to, to doing that, and recently we had just a few days ago, the, the death of, of one of these policemen at the hands of the drug gangs. So in both these situations, we're dealing with some, some very challenging dynamics and often a lot of pain and distrust, sometimes going back many, many years. In fact, sometimes we say here in Brazil that every circle is, every, sorry, every conflict that is brought to, to a circle is in fact 500 years old, and every circle really has 190 million people in it. Because mm. when we do this work, we become so aware of how interdependent we all are as human beings, how, mm. uh, how much our destiny is connected to those people who we live with and yet sometimes don't even know the names of. So in both these situations, what we found is that the first thing we need to do is to create a community agreement that we will respond to conflict in non-punitive or restorative means. And w what that involves is a new view of community because in the case of the teachers and the students, often they would define themselves as being part of a community made up of other teachers and the students would define themselves as being part of a group of students. In the, in the favelas, the police would define themselves as being part of a unique community and not necessarily connected to the community of residents in, in the shantytown itself. And then obviously those residents would probably subdivide themselves by identifying to all kinds of different communities within the different geographical areas of where they live and then perhaps associated with different families, different churches, different activities, different football teams even, and on and on. So identifying community in this new sense means recognizing the extent to which we are interconnected and defining community as being those people whom I impact and who impact me. And amongst those people, reaching agreement that this is how we want to do things. We want to respond to conflict restoratively. And when we do that, we create, as it were, a, a room, a space that's dedicated to this response, and within which a practice like restorative circles has a chance of actually surviving, of of being seen as valid by the community and its results being seen as valid too. So it's identifying community and then reaching an agreement about a systemic or organized way of responding to conflict restoratively that we found sets the context for the sometimes quite extraordinary changes we can see happening in restorative circles. Hmm. And Dominic, you, you share um, some particular systemic context, which I know you've already touched on um, today, but uh, first of all, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, how would an individual in, in a community who knows that this is something that would be 
really appropriate and helpful um, and wants to respond to a particular conflict at hand in this way, can you say a little bit about these systemic contexts and, and how a person from scratch might start something within their own community? Well, I think there are a couple of ways to begin, and and one would be um, just to ask around, because restorative justice has spread so far and so wide. It's been such a powerful idea in all kinds of places around the world that it's very likely that there are some people not so far from you who are already doing something similar. So I'd say one really valuable way would be to connect to them, learn from them, and start working together, start collaborating. Some of those people might be coming to restorative justice as a very new idea. Others might be rediscovering it within different indigenous practices, which are part Mm -hmm. of those populations in your local community who've perhaps been most excluded and have taken with them this very excluded way of of responding to, to justice. So it can also be very significant and very powerful to connect with those people and say, those communities, and say, um, I w- I'd love to learn with you. I'd love to, I'd love to understand how you do things and support that kind of process to move a little bit closer, bring that flame a little bit closer into the center of community life, which, of course, is where, where it used to be at other times in history. Another way if that option doesn't seem available to you locally, would be to start conversations with the people who you live with and work with and play with and pray with around how they currently respond to injustice, how they currently respond to painful conflict and violence when it occurs in their communities. I've found that um, people have an awful lot of understanding if they're asked about this but often don't share it, don't even articulate it, even to themselves, because the questions are not asked. Mm. So I'd want to start a series of conversations with with the people I live with about how we respond to conflict. I found that uh, a justice system, if you will, an informal justice system, is not optional. If any group of people come together and start collaborating, living together, working together, then very, very soon, there'll be an organized response to conflict among them. And if we don't choose consciously which organized response to conflict we'd like, then we will get the one that we've inherited from our culture. And that may well already be the case for some people listening. You may have noticed in your family or at work that there already is a justice system, that you're signed up to it, but you didn't actually choose it consciously. And if you notice that that's so, and it's not working in the way that you'd like to, then that might be a good place to begin. One of the things that I, I really appreciate about um, what you emphasize, Dominic, is the fact that we have an, inher- an inherent understanding of what restorative practices are. And also, um, someone on the webcast is also making a really good point about um, the importance of our expectations. Would you mind speaking to, to these two things, especially, of course, the importance um, and the quality of our, of our expectations or lack thereof as we approach these practices. Yeah, thank you for that, because that reminds me of something which for me is, is really, really central, which is... Which and is I just want to... Uh, excuse me, Dominic. I just want to acknowledge Steve from the webcast for, for bringing that up, and, and he uh, just to honor his question, he says, Susan Livingston recently pointed out to me 
that sometimes people approach restorative circles with specific expectations. They want resolution or justice or fairness or what have you. She then pointed out that it's most effective when there are no preconceived notions or expectations of the process. So thank you, Steve, and just would love to hear your your thoughts on this, Dominic. Yeah, thank you, Molly and, and Steve and Susan. Um, <laughs> right. Oh, right. Well, I'd, lo- I'd, lo- I'd love to be able to go to a, a restorative process without expectations. That's never happened to me. Um, I live in hope. <laughs> I think that, that would be a wonderful <laughs> thing. Um, that, for me, would be like going to a restorative circle without having judgments, either judgments of, of the actual act that took place or judgments of the different people involved or judgments of myself. But, um, but that isn't a reality for me. I, I have lots of judgments, particularly around the things that are really important to me. Um, and, therefore, lots of expectations, lots of hopes of how things are going to be, lots of wishes for, for the outcome that may arise. Um, so support is absolutely essential for me if I'm going to build a restorative system or if I'm going to facilitate these encounters where everybody involved in a painful conflict comes together to dialogue, encounters that we're calling here restorative circles. I need a lot of support because the, the tendency of my thinking within the context in which I live is to search for the person who's done the wrong thing and then to define what it is that they've done wrong, and then to work out how to impose force on them to make them change. And that seems to be a very logical idea within most of the social contexts in which I live. For me to be able to contribute to building an alternative social context in which a logical response would be to dialogue rather than to punish, Uh, I need a lot of support. I need a lot of support so that I can listen to those expectations or listen to those judgments and find out the values or the principles that are speaking through them so that I can transform the judgments and the expectations but not lose touch with the principles or the values that are motivating them. Because those principles or values, those are the ones that are going to energize us to take concrete steps towards justice. So for me, having a support system is a really key process, a key part of of everything that I'm describing here. And then offering others a similar support system is incredibly important. So before we actually meet together in a circle, we do a process that we call a pre-circle. And in a pre-circle, each of the self-defined participants in the painful conflict sit down with someone who has already decided to offer this service to others. They're normally a member of the same community, so they're not an outside professional or someone with particular skill, but someone with willingness within the system to host this meeting. And they'll sit down in the pre-circle and they'll just listen. But the quality of listening that they have is of a very particular nature. And what it does is it builds a sense of empathic alliance and it creates a context of support for that participant so that before we actually sit down they've already had a tangible experience of being heard and seen in a different way and have begun to remember what dialogue actually looks like when it's just not not simply a a synonym for conversation but a very very specific and unique way of sharing power 
Mm. Wow, thank you so much. That uh, it's really a delight to to hear how you unpack this these complex things, Dominic. And I just want to um, again welcome anyone who's arriving late today. We're talking with Dominic Barter of Restorative Circles. Uh, that's RestorativeCircles.org, and just encouraging everyone to check out the work of Restorative Circles. And Dominic actually will be in the United States here in just a short time next week for the Colorado Restorative Justice Summit, August 9th through 11th, and also will be um, hosted by the Gandhi Institute, GandhiInstitute.org, August 18th, and then a very intensive training um, circle collaboration with him August 20th through the 23rd in Rochester, New York. So I just, um, we're going to be going into live questions here shortly uh, at about the quarter of the hour. I'd like to field another question from the webcast from someone dear to my heart uh, from the River Phoenix Center of Peace Building. Jeffrey asks, what is the role of empathy and other NVC principles in restorative circles as compared to other RJ practices? Well, first of all, Jeffrey, thanks for the wonderful work you guys are doing there all the way down here in Brazil. We we hear about what you do. It's wonderful to know that there are people all around the world doing stuff like you are. Um, so I've found that uh, that empathy is is one of the 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 basis of of everything that happens in a in a restorative process. Um, when when it seems mysterious how people who previously have been threatening each other or refusing to exchange words or see each other, look at each other in, in the eye or perhaps are making decisions that are going to increase the amount of pain that they feel or increase pain for other people. When we see how, how these situations transform, superficially it can seem quite mysterious. Even when it's a very simple change, still it can seem to have come from nowhere. But if we start to educate ourselves in the dynamics of empathy and understand ourselves as empathic beings, then those dynamics start to be revealed. So I think of empathy as being, um, as being absolutely central to what we're doing. And, and I have a very specific way of understanding empathy, which this work has, um, has led me to, to have. And that is that that empathy, rather than being a particular way of speaking or even a particular way of listening, is a, a giving of my presence, a focus of my attention that removes the blocks to action. So empathy, even while it might have a very therapeutic byproduct, it's fundamentally not about relief. It's not about feeling better but it's about feeling energized. It's about feeling engaged. It's about mm. connecting to other human beings and then connecting to the contexts in which the conflict itself became painful so that we can transform those conflicts. So it's, it's really a, it's a, social, it's a tool of social change. It's a, it's a dynamic that's essential in the transformation of social systems that are working to separate people and distribute resources in ways that leave some people hungry, some people uneducated, some people unhoused, some people removed from the option to be able to influence the political context in which they live. 
And so I want to, uh, to the best of my ability, study and practice what exactly does this mean, giving of my presence, focusing my attention in this specific way, and how does that relate to the way I share power with other people? And when my understanding of empathy has, has that reach to it, then I found, um, well, my life, personally speaking, in my family, in my relationships, uh, growing together with my daughter, that's totally transformed. But also my ability to be able to, to contribute to other aspects of the world that I live in is transformed. And I, I, I love what happens when empathy is, is part of that. Hmm. Uh, again, tying in the the uh, weaving of the week that we have here during Justice Week. Yesterday, of course, again with Arun Gandhi, and um, the the principle, um, the deep um, essence of be the change from, of course, his grandfather uh, Gandhi Ji. Um, it seems like we're talking a bit about what that might be. Um, presence being. Uh, a place that that really allows for us to um, be okay with with going more deeply into conflict together. What what can we do um, for ourselves, Dominic, um, to to be more present to to embrace conflict? I, I like the word presence because um, etymologically, if we look at the root meaning of, of it in English and in and in many other languages too. Then it means pre, that means before, that's the, the, the prefix. And then the S-E-N in the middle of the word uh, is the verb to be, coming from the Latin. So mm. presence actually refers to that which we are before we are, which might sound a little bit like a paradox, but I love <laughs> it because it means that present is already there. I don't have to do anything about presence at all. What can be useful is to look out for ways in which I block my my presence or make it mm. less visible mm -hmm. to other people. So there are certain things that I can do to turn up the volume on my presence so that it becomes more tangible to others. And when it's tangible, it also becomes contagious. It's a, a, an offer that people feel invited by, as if I'm inviting them to a particular space and they can join me in that space. So there are all kinds of things that people can do to diminish the possible blocks that they might be having on, on their presence. And one which is most profound for me is simply setting up a, a supportive relationship with someone else, someone who I can speak to when I find myself challenged to be fully truthful, mm. when I find myself challenged to hear someone else's truth when it's spoken either verbally or, or non-verbally. And many people have uh, what they call spiritual practices which support them to do the same thing. For me personally, the most powerful thing is to be heard by someone whose, focused, whose focus of attention is not necessarily on the words that I'm using, but on the underlying meaning that I'm wanting to point to. And I find just a, just a few moments of being heard in that way is remarkably transformative and allows me to come forward with my presence that much more strongly. Mm -hmm. Well, this conversation um, really has has gone deeply into the individual 
and um, and communal and grassroots. And I'm, I'm just curious to know also on the bigger picture systemic level, uh, especially here, Dominic, in, in the Western part of, of the, the world, so to speak, in the United States specifically, we, um, we're in a, a deep transformation in, in our justice system, in the criminal justice system, um, and wondering what your thoughts are on where we're headed and, and what hopes and, and observations you might, might have for especially uh, this system that seems to be motivated pure, purely by profit and, um, and certainly is punitive, uh, overridingly punitive in its nature. Yeah, I, w- I was very, um, very taken aback by the first meeting I had with the first prison governor who I visited here in here in Brazil. When I knew that uh, that I had the chance to sit down and speak to her, um, I was uh, I was quite nervous, as I often am, <laughs> as I am right now. <laughs> and as I'm I'm nervous every time I speak about something that's really important to me. Mm. And and what was really fascinated me was, wow, I'm going to get a chance. To sit down and talk to someone who actually supports the logic of a, of a punitive response to conflict and maintains an you know, aspect of, of a retributive justice system. Um, so I thought for quite a, quite a few days about how I would speak to her and how I would present uh, an alternative model. And when I met her, she surprised me immediately by, by as soon as I walked into her room Kind of inviting me to step back out and pointing down the corridor and showing me the the bars where the where the the, the prisoners started to be to be grouped up and there were all these faces squashed against the bars really um, very very intense overcrowding in in most of the prisons that I visited here in Brazil and she said what I need is help with the day that that these guys are going to get out and mm. as I started to talk to her I started to understand that she knew better than anyone, the limits of the current system. How, mm-hmm. how could she possibly work effectively within that system if she was incapable of looking at it honestly and seeing what it was capable of doing and, and what it wasn't? And then I was profoundly shocked because I realized that the main difference between her and me was not the way we understood the justice system, but the fact that she woke up every morning and went to work in a system which she knew was in many ways, profoundly broken, whereas mm. I would stay at home and criticize her for doing the same. And it started to, to alert me to the fact that the current justice system is, in many respects, the best we currently know how to do. And that, for me, is a, a very shocking and very sobering thing to, to observe. When I see things that way, rather than wasting my energy in trying to identify who's to blame for the way things currently are. I actually now see the people who work in the current system as allies, and I seek to partner with them in order to transform things in a way that can heal some of the extraordinary historical imbalances of power within the current justice system, and at the same time provide the seeds of an alternative way of responding to conflict in our communities that doesn't sustain a balance of power which is, is, is not going to create the, kind of the world that, that we want to live in, not going to create the world I'd like my daughter to, to grow up in, and, and, and they have children too. 
So I want to look at the current system. I want to look at what it currently does and what it's currently unable to do and the internal contradictions and the pressures that it's suffering and see myself as a partner in the transformation that those systems are, are going through mm. and particularly of the individuals within those systems who are desperately trying to create uh, an alternative that really will uh, bring safety to our communities rather than the current cycles of recidivism and, and pain and broken families, um, systemic racial segregation and all the other aspects of, of how justice systems currently work. To me, that you speak of, of the bridge uh, of, um, and the opportunity where we're at right now, and I just love the way that you, where, where you're coming from. Um, it reminds me of the Dalai Lama, um, and of course he, he's, uh, so to speak, up against uh, the, the most um, difficult so-called opponents ever in the Chinese, and he's doing what he's doing as accepting them. Um, fully and not just in lip service as his teachers and 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 allies even in um, possibly creating a whole different situation um, and I know in my own experience of going into prisons um, over the last fifteen years, having the opportunity to transform my own inner compass and compassion and understanding of our e- equal interest. Um, has been profound for me. So I, I just um, I'm just really uh, appreciative of the webcast questions. And at this point, Dominic, I'd love to invite people who are live on the telephone or via Skype. If you have a question that you'd like to to ask Dominic, please press star two on your telephone keypad in order to do that. And we'll see what we can do to answer to those who might like to ask a question or make a comment. Okay, um, there's somebody that is calling in without a number attached, so I'm going to go ahead and unmute your phone and you can announce your name and ask your question. Hi, Molly and Dominic. It's Kennedy. How are you? Welcome, Kennedy. Hi. Hi. Great to hear your voice. (laughs) This is is all fairly new, this part of the piece... um, global projects that we're all engaged in. What I'm interested in, uh, particularly given the Colorado shootings that have just recently happened and what it's doing to the community and what it may, uh, how it may occur in the restorative system, uh, in terms of timing with an event like that, is that important? Can you immediately go into a community with an alternative way to work with this right after a tragic event like that or how does that work? So my understanding, Kennedy, is that there are many, many people around the world who are asking that question and developing different kinds of responses because the need is so obvious. So many of the the, the procedures that I would like to see as being very, very normal in our societies do not currently exist. But a good number of them are beginning to exist. And they're beginning to exist because people see situations like what happened in Colorado. They recognize that there's a huge lack and they start responding to it. So I don't have any specific examples, but I'd be very surprised if there weren't people 
who have an orientation similar to a restorative orientation, perhaps they come from a mediation background, perhaps it's their religious community that leads them to do this, perhaps they have a political understanding that leads them to do this. But I imagine that there are people on the street simply talking to others and attempting to create dialogue around healing what needs to be healed after something like that has happened. And I think that's uh, that's a, a fantastically valuable thing, and we don't need to wait to do that. You can do that immediately. And, of course, you can do that wherever you are in the world. You don't need to, to be living in geographical proximity to these events because they've become global through the, the Internet and the, the news media. And the, the pain that they cause, therefore, also could be anywhere, could be with, with your neighbor right now. But what I'd like together with these processes and what we can't improvise and immediately uh, pro provide, we have to think about it collectively and organize it systemically. What I'd like there to be is aspects of our organized response to conflict, aspects of the justice system, which actually respond in moments like this and take care of things on a wider scale. And these uh, will need to be built. And that's, that's a very different process. It, it can't be done uh, in a moment. It needs to be planned. And I would like us all to start laying the work for those kind of systems right now because, unfortunately, we know that occurrences like this will continue to happen as long as the wider social context in which we live is, is so supportive of those, as long as the, the people we vote for uh, make very similar decisions to the man who, who went into that cinema, as long as the way we understand our communities is still based on the idea that some people are bad and they need to be separated and punished or perhaps even killed. Yes, thank you for that. And it, it, it does seem that we are leaving out a big piece, even though now there are many uh, prayer circles in many different ways that people are coming to compassion around this event. Uh, the perpetrator, is, as it's called in the system, is still um, not as present as in this case he could be. So, um, yes, I look forward to those systems as well, and thank you so much for your work, and Molly, thank you too for your relentless and beautiful deep work in this way as well in the world. Oh, thank you so much, Kennedy. Mm -hmm. thank, thank you for you. that question too. I I think that that, I mean, it's, it was a part of where I was hoping to go here with you a bit, Dominic, around Aurora and and the shooting and then also the you know the global events that we're seeing in in Syria and otherwise and um and just you know what how how do we really respond and what what do we make of of these things and then of course um Kennedy bringing up such a a powerful aspect of of justice and and the paradigm of the perpetrator um the paradigm that we hold we seem to hold um, and broadening that perspective to see the perpetrator also as a victim and um, how that relates to bringing balance, atonement, restoration, and truth to the entire circle involved, which in this, you know, in the Aurora shooting case seems to be such a wide circle, if not the, our global family. So thank you, Kennedy. And do you have any further thoughts that you'd like to share? Um, Dominic, well, about, about many of the, the people who I work with, many of the people who who I work with here, whether they're they're in uniform or they consider themselves part of of different gangs, uh, 
um, killing each other will be a pretty normal part of of what they understand life to be to be about, and and many of them will, uh, many of them have committed many killings, and one of the things that I've repeatedly found is that there is a very very deep, almost overwhelming, and therefore often hidden yearning for there to be another way to work things out. None of these people grew up thinking, this is what I want to learn how to do. So creating the conditions whereby that yearning can be articulated and heard, creating a systemic context in which that makes sense, in which what would perhaps normally be considered, or in one context would be considered weakness, can actually be seen as strength. And perhaps that relates to the conversation, Molly, that you and Arun were having yesterday about vulnerability, creating a context in which vulnerability can be prized as an expression of power. That creates mm. a whole new situation, as it were, like an amnesty, an amnesty from a different part of our lives, where we ourselves can give ourselves amnesty, understanding that the things that we have done, we've done in a particular context not just because we have a particular psychological makeup, but because that particular psychological makeup interacts with others and creates a weave, and that weave had a certain orientation that has now begun to change. And creating that amnesty so that we can begin to move into situations in which sharing that vulnerability and that yearning for a different way of doing things, so that we don't kill people, either with guns or with words or with signatures on pieces of paper or with decisions about mm -hmm. how we use our money or which economic system we have, where those decisions can start to change. And what we see on a micro scale when that happens is very, very clear. All restorative justice work recognizes that the levels of recidivism, of repeat offending, tend to diminish, and restorative circles is no different. And what we've seen here with the work in Brazil is that not only do then people start to, to choose actions which create more harmony and more cohesion in society and let go of those actions which tend to separate and create pain. But people also start to engage further with that context, and then it becomes a virtuous circle. And now the more I make those choices, the more I get energy to start changing the social systems around me. And the more those social systems change, the more community support, the more cultural support I have for living the life that I'd like to live and co-creating the world in which we all want to live. Hmm. Well, Dominic, I I was wondering if I might be um, so bold as to, to answer to one of the um, questions that's coming up here from the webcast. Um, just as a summation, I'm, I'm feeling an urgency here of making sure people know and feel empowered as to how to go about um, creating their own um, microsystem in their community. And you've so beautifully shared with me over the couple times that we've gone in together the the preconditions, the five systemic contexts for um, mm -hmm. setting up a circle. And may I, may I just briefly outline those and then invite you to comment? Great. Great. And uh, a thanks to Julie, too, for, for the question she asks. Um, how can I set up a forum for RJ in my community, and what would such a system look like? Um, she asks, 
what models or templates are there, and I know that you've covered that a bit, but here's here's what I have, these five preconditions. Uh, first of all, uh, shared community, having agreement, po- uh, shared power, and um, co-creative influence. Uh, number two, your space. Uh, the space needs to reflect the, the shared power of the process and, and symbolizes that that shared power and enriches it. Number three, members of the community who are ongoingly inspired to offer facilitation. Number four, the way in which we get the word out, how a community gets the word out and how everyone in that community and beyond can access it, uh, a.k.a. Um, how to submit uh, a conflict, how to engage um, a particular situation and connect it with a circle. And then number five, um, creating the access point itself for initiating that. Um, a specific point, uh, for example, on a website or otherwise where people can um, connect with with the circle itself. So um, the, those are very quick in a nutshell notes. And we're we're getting close to to our closing time here together. It's gone by so fast, but I'd love for you to to comment a little bit further on those, if you might. Well, it all sounds good to me. The, these these five preconditions are basically the things that over the last two decades I've seen repeatedly uh, present when restorative systems are set up and continue and are sustainable. So I very much encourage people to pay attention to them. Um, and we're walking a, a really interesting thin line here. We're wanting to make sure that we don't uh, create some kind of pattern, something that worked in a school or in a, or in a prison or in a community in Brazil would necessarily work in a family in Canada, for example. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I've noticed that in more than 22 countries around the world where people have used this process in all kinds of different levels of their community life, these five preconditions have always been present when the process worked well. Well, I love the way that you, one of the things that's so profound to me about your work and restorative circles is is that really, truly, we make a a somewhat of a formula, but then there really is no formula because every circumstance is unique. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. We're We're accompanying conflict. We're not trying to to change it or make it go away in any patterned way. We're, we're studying it. We're making ourselves right. uh, humble uh, in, in front of conflict so that we can learn from it and so that it can change us. Um, and that means necessarily being very susceptible to each other and very open mm. to the process and what might happen next. So, Dominic, um, it's always a, it's just a joy always to converse with you and... Uh, just in closing here today, um, let's take just a few, just a moment here, probably a minute, uh, for closing comments from you, um, inviting the making it real piece of of today's call and every day during the summer of peace. How how do we make it real together um, in our lives individually? Well, one thing that I've already mentioned, which I'd like to encourage everyone to do, is to ask those three questions. Uh, of each other, you know, what do we currently do that works well when conflict arises? What wasn't, what doesn't work quite so well, and how do we dream it could be? Um, mm. Because I found that that's a very, very powerful process for creating connection and community between people 
who, may sh- who might share a concern about this but might not know that that concern is shared because we don't talk about these things so much. Another piece is, as I've already mentioned, is make sure that you have support. Establish a relationship of support with another person. Um, learn about restorative justice. Go online, find out uh, about what's available, but mostly look in your local area for who's currently doing this work and connect to communities that already have some kind of restorative practice. And in terms of learning about the inner mechanics of what makes a process that this function, then I'd really recommend that people check out the work of a man called Marshall Rosenberg, who has been a fundamental mentor to me on, on this journey of learning about conflict. And uh, he has some just fantastic knowledge from over 50 years of, of researching this area. Um, and one last thing that I'd like to add to this is a little game that sometimes people like playing, is to choose a conflict that's currently active in your life, something that hasn't been resolved yet. You're going to do this exercise on your own, or perhaps just with one other person there as, there as a support, but you're not going to bring the other people involved in this conflict into this process. You're just going to use this as a rehearsal. And take some small objects, uh, a ring, a coin, uh, a button, something that you have close to you that's easier to hand, and sit down with these objects and actually place them in a circle and give the, the name of one of the people involved in this conflict to each of these objects and have the dialogue. Have a, have a very, very honest, truthful conversation in your mind or out loud if you, if you, if you enjoy doing it that way between these people. And when someone speaks, turn to the person they've spoken to and just ask the person they've spoken to, what did you hear them say? And then back to the person who spoke. Is that it? Is that what you wanted heard? And keep going like that. Keep interrupting our tendency to stop dialogue by having a serial monologue, one person responding after the other. And instead of that, invite people to actually listen to each other. So this Mm. is just a little game that we do as practicing. It's not meant to provide any kind of deep healing or anything, but simply to warm us up to the possibilities that a restorative practice can can provide. Mm. Thank you so much, Dominic. Thank you for who you are and for your service to this world and for what you bring through you, your humility, your light, and your acumen. And I just want to encourage everyone, again, um, to please check out restorativecircles.org. There's some phenomenal materials and videos there. And then also, of course, the upcoming United States visit and tour that Dominic um, will be on, or mini tour, so to speak. Um, you can check out the GandhiInstitute.org for the training in Rochester, as well as the Colorado Restorative Justice Summit, um, which is upcoming next week, August 9th through 11th. So it's with uh, just great um, respect that uh, I thank you so much, Dominic, for being with us today and for all of you on the webcast um, for being in this circle. And I just want to also invite you to tomorrow. I'll be co-hosting with Philip Helmick from the Shift Network, uh, Libby Hoffman and John Cocker from Famble Talk, which is Family Talk, and Healing the Wounds of War. It should be a profound hour with them. And you also will want to, if you haven't already checked out, Famble Talk International. Um, That's FambleTalk.org. And uh, finally, in accessing these recordings, you can access this one as well as yesterday's for 48 hours. And then if you wish, you can upgrade to access all the Summer of Peace recordings at summerofpeace.net. 
Thank you again, everyone, and thank you, Dominic. Thank you. Thank you.